Hi, I'm Mark Roderick. Coming up, President Biden unveils his immigration plan. We'll get an update on the General Assembly's week. And former Attorney General Eric Holder says North Carolina is ground zero in the redistricting fight. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Letty. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with Carolina Journal, communications consultant Donna King, political analyst Joe Stewart, and Nelson Dollar, senior advisor to North Carolina Speaker of the House. Mitch, why don't we begin with President Biden's immigration plan? On the campaign trail, Joe Biden differentiated his ideas about immigration from those of the Trump administration, and those differences are now playing out under a Biden administration. You're seeing proposals that are very different from those of the Trump administration, but in some ways are similar to those of prior President Barack Obama and even President George W. Bush in that Joe Biden supports more legal immigration and some sort of pathway to citizenship for most illegal immigrants. A problem for the Biden administration is, like those two previous presidents who had trouble getting anything through in immigration, Joe Biden is trying to move something forward with a very closely divided U.S. House and a 50-50 Senate. And while he's moving forward, he has almost nothing that's a concession to Republicans. So it's unlikely that he would get any Republican votes. And some people have characterized Joe Biden's plan on immigration as being to the left of the plan that was put forward by Barack Obama. He wants to increase the so-called diversity lottery from about 55,000 immigrants to 80,000. He wants to see more of this family-based uh, immigration, which has been a problem for a number of Republicans. He does almost nothing on border security, which has been a key concern among conservatives and Republicans. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether he can get something forward with the Congress that we have. A couple of other interesting notes involving Joe Biden and immigration that are sort of downsides for him. The Biden administration opened up its first child immigrant detention facility in Texas, drawing fire from people like U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who really uh, excoriated the Biden administration. The second thing is a Texas judge put a halt on the Biden administration's plan to have a 100-day moratorium on deportation. So uh, not a great start on immigration for Joe Biden. That's really good points, Mitch. Uh, Nelson, it is hard to get a consensus on immigration, isn't it? Uh, it's been exceedingly difficult uh, over a number of decades because, you know, if you look back, uh, the United States always had sort of a, a double-minded policy. It, it spoke of having uh, strong borders. At the same time, you needed agricultural workers to come in and, and pick crops in a number of states, including North Carolina. Uh, but it, another thing, I think, on the political side that's very interesting, uh, Democrat observers, media people think that um, uh, uh, these folks coming in uh, will bolster the Democratic Party. And that's actually not necessarily true if you look at uh, President Trump's performance down in those border counties. 
He actually did far better. He did far better uh, with Hispanic voters uh, in the 2020 election. And if you look at the values of second and third generation Hispanics, uh, they're far more interested in religious values, family values, uh, as well as law and order issues, safety and economic uh, freedom. Donna, is it wise to be opening up the border right now, rolling back Trump policies during a pandemic? Well, I think that that's exactly what we're seeing. Of course, uh, the Trump administration had something called the MPP, the Migrant Protection Protocol, uh, which required folks to stay in Mexico uh, while they seek asylum until their paperwork is filed. Um, the Trump Biden administration rolled that back, and we're already seeing the impact of that. Uh, as of about Sunday, most of the unaccompanied minor shelters were about 93% capacity. They're getting about 250 minors uh, every day. So I think that beyond policy, this is an everyday problem that the folks there in Texas and the Border Patrol are really having to deal with. But I also, you know, to, to Nelson's point, I do think that this is a a group of folks who uh, perhaps culturally might lean more conservative. And I think that this is something that we're really going to have to follow and do something about. And it's been difficult for many presidents. Joe, wrap this up in about 30 seconds quickly, please. Yeah, I think the challenge for the Biden administration is the U.S. Senate. You have razor thin margins for the Democrats. And that means that the Biden administration can only get past things that are razor thin wide. And so any dissension among Democrats in the Senate would make a bill unpassable. He's got to appease all 50 of the Democrats in the Senate to get anything done. Okay, we'll continue to follow this story. I want to move on to the General Assembly's week. Nelson. Yes, Mark. Supporting students and families continue to be a focus this week in the General Assembly. HB 82, Summer Learning Choice for North Carolina Families, uh, a bill that provides uh, learning and uh, enrichment programs for at-risk children, uh, passed unanimously, 120 to 0 in the House. Uh, two bills, um, House Bill 79 and uh, House Bill uh, 78, uh, student digital learning access and a report on K-12 computer science data also passed unanimously in the House. Uh, those are focused on preparing our students and schools to be successful in the expanding digital economy. Uh, the Senate passed a very important piece of legislation this week, uh, SB 52, sex offender residency restrictions. And what this did was close a loophole uh, and ensure that sex offenders cannot reside in any way close to uh, in, closer than a thousand feet uh, to a school or a, a daycare center. The Senate also moved through committee a couple of bills that will be coming up next week that would open up uh, athletic events, particularly high school sporting events, uh, to more students, families, uh, and supporters uh, this spring. Joe, what have you been following, my friend? Well, I think it's interesting that the legislature has been very thoughtful, and I'd say in a very bipartisan way, of looking what lessons have been learned through COVID-19. And the one that uh, interests me the most is the expansion of rural broadband, making sure that parts of the state that have not historically enjoyed the benefit of high-speed internet access are going to have those uh, resources made available to them. We found as schools had to move to a remote learning environment and workers were working from home, that the lack of that access to the internet at the highest possible rates was problematic for people in rural North Carolina. And the legislature's looking at a lot of different ways to try to accelerate the extension of that uh, broadband to all parts of North Carolina. Donna, weigh in here, please. 
Um, I think broadband is a critically important piece of this, but then, of course, so is getting students back in school. I'm watching closely to see what uh, Governor Cooper is going to do about the bill uh, to get students back in school, at least in a hybrid uh, in a hybrid way. Uh, one of the things that his hesitation has been is that he said we really just don't have a lot of data on what these older grades, middle and high school, what the transmission rate of coronavirus is among those grades, but we mostly don't have it because they haven't been in. Uh, and that's one of the things that we're seeing, having a student myself, the hybrid one week in, two week out, uh, is, is not working either. So I don't know what the resolution to that will be, but I'm certainly watching that. Put this in context, Mitch. Well, there were a lot of interesting developments. You've heard many of them. I think one we haven't mentioned yet that does need to be mentioned is this was the first opportunity for the General Assembly to grill the executive director of the State Board of Elections about just what happened with all of those settlements that affected the uh, rules for the 2020 election. And you could tell there are a number of legislators who really were not happy about the way that played out with the backroom settlement involving Mark Elias. And so that could have an impact on what the Board of Elections is able to do uh, going forward because the General Assembly could uh, put in some new reins on them. Joe, wrap this up in about 25 seconds, please, my friend. Yeah, no, the General Assembly clearly getting down to business appropriations uh, committees and meetings, looking at the fiscal forecast for the state. We're sort of getting into that usual part of the long session where the General Assembly is putting together its biennial budget proposal for consideration by the governor. Okay, Donna, I want to change gears here and take a little time to talk about redistricting. And I see that uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder is weighing in this fight. Yes, in a speech given at UNC School of Law, he said North Carolina was ground zero uh, on some of the policies that his organization is interested in going after. Of course, um, uh, Holder leads an organization that bankrolls a lot of the lawsuits that we've seen over the last few years across the country and in North Carolina. So I would say hang on to your hat because we're going to see a lot more legal action uh, as he's going to be focused on and his organization is going to be focused on getting uh, North Carolina's districting process through the court system once again. Of course, all of this is because the uh, 2020 census data is due to come out. The, it's been pushed back. It's going to not really come until September, uh, which really is going to delay perhaps some of the primaries that we're supposed to have because redrawing those district lines is going to take some time, particularly if there's legal wrangling. And that census data is also really even affecting some municipal elections that aren't, are going to get pushed as well because they're waiting for that 2020 census data, data to come in September. But I think we are going to see a lot of legal action as uh, Holder and some of those organizations try to push through in our legal system. Mitch, how much weight does Holder bring to the table? How much juice can he bring to the table? Well, certainly a lot because he has tied uh, not only his National Redistricting Committee, but he, with his other ties, uh, is able to put a lot of money into uh, into this process as well. His group, the PAC associated with him, put a lot of money into the Democratic Party. It spent the max to help uh, try to get Anita Earls on the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, of course, helps decide redistricting lawsuits that are based on the state constitution. It's no surprise to me that Eric Holder is going to be involved in this because lawsuits involve Involving him helped flip North Carolina's congressional delegation from 10-3 Republican to 8-5, now with a likely 14th seat. I'm sure they're going to try to see if they can get an even better split from their perspective of Democrats and Republicans in the delegation. Nelson, weigh in here. Well, you know, it's been a race for the last 30 years between Texas and North Carolina as to who's going to have the most Supreme Court decisions on redistricting. In fact, uh, <laughs> Uh, Supreme Court Justice Alito observed uh, a couple of cases back that in one opinion, one 
North Carolina Congressional District had been the subject of three separate United States Supreme Court decisions. That's how bad it is. So North Carolina is one of the most highly regulated states in terms of uh, its legislative and congressional redistricting. And it really is time for the courts to let the people's elected representatives in the legislature do their constitutional duty without the courts consistently changing the rules. Joe, weigh in here, please. Yes, the Danish physicist and poet Piet Hein wrote that love is like a pineapple, sweet <laughs> and undefinable. Well, the legislative process for putting together districts is unlike love because neither one of those things apply. It's a pretty simple formula. You have to put the same number of people in state house, state senate, and congressional districts honoring existing borders and communities of interest. The challenge becomes making sure that those maps can withstand a court challenge and take into account, relatively speaking, the interest of particular incumbents that may be serving in the General Assembly at the time. This process has become so hopelessly complicated because of all of this litigation, I think it only exacerbates and frustrates voters who may, over the course of two or three election cycles, have to choose between two or three different candidates for the same office because the district lines have been moved. Uh, hopefully, someone's going to design a perfect computer program at some point that can draw maps that sustain a court challenge so that we can get them drawn once and use them for the entire decade. Donna, wrap this up, please, in about 30 seconds. Yeah, I think we're going to be looking at season two of this drama. Uh, uh, Holder is already, he was involved in, in the redistricting fights earlier. The Democrats picked up two seats. Republicans held on to the remainder. And I think this time around, they're going to be working on it hard. And uh, Senate leader Phil Berger, one of the spokesmen from his uh, office has already called Holder a phony political operator. So I think that this is going to be a lot of drama moving forward. So no love lost between the Republicans and Holder? Yes, I think not. More of the same. Okay. I want to change here just a little bit. Uh, looks like the governor's relaxing restriction, COVID-19 restrictions, uh, Joe. Yes, in an announcement this week, uh, Governor Roy Cooper saying that he's using that dimmer switch uh, to modify the restrictions that have been imposed upon businesses as a result of what he considers to be favorable metrics relative to COVID-19, uh, fewer positive tests, fewer emergency room admissions for symptoms of COVID-19. And so lifted somewhat the restrictions on bars now. They can serve alcohol until 11 p.m. The curfew that was in place for the state's now been lifted as well, and the capacity within those establishments increased to 30% of the max. Uh, other establishments like restaurants and retail still remain at a 50% capacity, but some other lifting of these is really uh, a, an effort, I think, on the part of the governor to bring uh, some good news to citizens who he feels have towed the line and done the right things to ensure that these metrics remain on the decrease. And so there's a psychology to it. The challenge will be, as these bars and restaurants and other established establishments now can get back up closer to full speed, they'll need to bring workers back online. And that, that's one of the challenges, making sure there are people available to come back into the employment of these establishments. And for the bars, the important thing to remember is their predictions of what business they'll get necessitate the purchase of alcohol for which they must spend cash up front. And so that magic mixture in the cocktail of business for a bar, having employees, having the right purchased amount of alcohol, and and knowing that people are going to show up to your establishment to purchase your wares makes this a very complicated thing, at least in the short term. Mitch, have the lockdowns work? Are American citizens uh, in general ceding too much uh, authority to government, you think? 
Well, they certainly are ceding too much authority to government, and I think people are, are, are stepping back and looking at this and saying we need to have a change. In fact, the General Assembly is likely to have discussion about the Emergency Management Act, which gives the governor a lot of powers. I think one of the interesting things about this latest order is that we always hear the governor talking about using science and data when he comes up with his various pronouncements. But I think if you look more closely, you also see a bit of a political dance between the governor's office and the legislature and the courts, because the General Assembly is coming up with bills that would open things up more quickly than the governor wants, and the courts are dealing with lawsuits that want to see things opened up. In fact, the latest order uh, may put a, a, a nail into the suit that a bar filed against the, the shutdown orders. So it looks like there's more than just science and data, but shock politics involved here. Nelson, expand on uh, Mitch's thoughts and what the General Assembly is doing. Well, I think Mitch is right. You know, it's certainly a welcome move in the right direction. Uh, but so far, the governor is not following the science developed by the CDC on safely opening public schools to in-person learning. You know, he's pushed up teachers in the priority list for vaccinations ahead of uh, people with, far, uh, with uh, chronic conditions and the like. But he's still not, as of... Um, uh, this show been willing to sign Senate Bill 37 to fully open the schools. Uh, we have the resources. We know what the best practices are. They've been developed in the uh, Strong Schools NC Public Health Toolkit. So we can do this safely and we need to get these kids back in school because it's just incredibly important, not only for their future careers, for the economy of the state uh, and for their mental health. Donna, wrap this up in about 30 seconds, please. Well, I think all of these schools, businesses, restaurants, the question is we're not going to be able to just pick up where we left off last March. Uh, it's, it's, is it too little too late? Has the damage been done? Uh, you know, kids are already behind, although summer schools should help mitigate some of the damage there. Uh, but folks are also changing their habits. They may have learned to cook during this time. Uh, they may have gotten used to watching their favorite basketball team on TV rather than going to PNC. Uh, all of these things are really going to take a heavy lift to really get people out, and even if they have money to spend, to go out if they haven't lost their jobs during all these shutdowns. So there's a lot of unanswered questions as we okay. move forward, but I know people are excited. Okay, we got to move. Let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. I mentioned earlier that the uh, executive director of the State Board of Elections, Karen Brinson-Bell, got kind of a chilly reception from some state lawmakers when she went before them and talked about some of the things happening on the elections front. She's not going to win any more friends from the, uh, the, the item that I label as an underreported story, and that is proposed rule changes that would deal with restricting poll watchers during elections and also uh, turning campaign flags and other uh, little uh, handouts as bill boards that would require new paperwork and really make a hit on grassroots activism tied to the elections. This is the type of thing that has generated complaints from the Republican Party, and my guess is the Republican legislature is not going to be too happy about it either. Is that a free speech issue in your view? Yeah, it certainly is in a lot of respects. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of our election campaign, whether you like those signs and little flags, they are part of the process and they help people learn about the candidates. Donna, underreported, please. 
This one really was uh, disturbing to me. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children say the number of reports of online enticement, people trying to uh, reach children, underage children online, has doubled since 2019, perhaps even more. They just have a double in the number of reports. Uh, that's something super alarming, and I think it's something as, particularly as kids are spending more and more time online through school, parents need to be more aware of that this is happening. Okay, Joe. Yeah, the Payroll Protection Act, uh, part of what was uh, incorporated into the COVID relief bill passed by Congress last year about this time, had a glitch in it relative to the deductibility of usual businesses expenses associated with the companies trying to administer these funds. Congress corrected that problem on the federal tax level with action last December. Now it's up to the state to take similar action. Legislation's been filed, Senate Bill 104, to bring the state in line with the federal uh, requirement, the business community working on this, trying to... Uh, overcome some opposition. Some legislators see it as perhaps double dipping by companies, getting a deductibility at the same time they receive federal money for this program. Employers say they really were administering this as a way to keep people out of the public unemployment system. And so as a result, it probably does constitute a usual business expense that should be deductible at the state level. Nelson, underreported, please, my friend. The United States, its allies, and Iran have been in an undeclared tanker war for the last two years. And in January, Iran seized a South Korean oil tanker. The crew was released, uh, but negotiations for return of the ship and the captain had drug on. This week, Iran announced it might release the ship if the Koreans unfreeze at least $1 billion in Iranian assets frozen as a result of U.S. sanctions. The Biden administration has apparently agreed to the extortion payments, uh, which could eventually total $7 billion. Uh, also, assets in Iraq, Oman, and Japan uh, may also be unfrozen. Tehran is demanding uh, that these funds be paid in cash. So this is certainly far more important development uh, than uh, you know a few U.S. airstrikes in Syria. Okay, let's go to lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? What's up is bipartisan interest in raising the minimum wage. This, of course, has been a major issue for Democrats for a number of years, but we saw in Congress a bill filed by two Republican senators. We're talking about Tom Cotton and Mitt Romney that would raise the minimum wage to $10 an hour by, 10, by 2025. The catch, they would also mandate the use of E-Verify, so an immigration piece. Uh, who's down? Belk talking about the department store chain that has 290 stores in 16 states, 17,000 employees. A judge has approved Chapter 11 bankruptcy for Belk, which has been struggling during the COVID-19 pandemic. Donna, who's up and who's down this week? Uh, so up, uh, fried food fans of uh, Agriculture Secretary Commerce... Agriculture Commissioner Steve Troxler announced this week that we will have the North Carolina State Fair coming in this October. I'm really excited about that. Uh, of course, we didn't have it last year amid the pandemic. Down the number of people enrolling in and applying for college in North Carolina. Of course, the exception to that are the three schools that are participating in the NC Promise program, which offers reduced tuition. We're also seeing decrease in enrollment and applications in magnet schools across North Carolina. Is that becoming a big trend, you think, decreased enrollment? I think so. And I think when it comes to the Wake County public school system and magnets, I think it's not necessarily because people are happy where they are. I think it's uh, that, you know, those who could sought out magnet programs uh, previously or they're moving on to charter or private school. Joe, who's up and who's down this week? 
who's up? State Senator Vicki Sawyer, Republican of Iredale County, just appointed the chair of the Republican Women's Legislative Caucus, replacing legislative icon, three-decade term incumbent Julia Howard in that role. Maybe some indication of a generational sea change taking place in key leadership positions within the General Assembly. Who's down? Expected that former President Donald Trump, now subject to many different lawsuits, will face a tremendous challenge trying to overcome that burden to establish himself as a continued national political figure, not the least of which the suit against him that would require the release of his tax returns. Those have now been turned over to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. My bottom line, true Trump supporters within the Republican Party, none of that matters to them. They remain committed to Trump. We'll see how the president does trying to maintain a presence in Republican politics going forward. Nelson, who's up and who's down this week, my friend? Florida. Florida's pandemic response is certainly far from perfect, but it's more targeted approach, allowing schools to open sooner, more businesses to open with fewer uh, out-of-work employees has fared far better uh, than states like California in terms of infection rates, the per capita death rate, and their economy is recovering uh, much faster than the national average. Who's down? Republican senators in Florida and early presidential primary poll in Florida. Republican voters gave Governor Ron DeSantis 64% of their support compared to Senator Mark Rubio at 12% and Senator Rick Scott at 10%. DeSantis really is coming on in Republican politics. I think DeSantis is, and I do think that um, uh, a governor uh, may well be the next nominee for president on, on the Republican side. There are a lot of strong governors with a lot of strong records. Headline next week, Mitch. Latest Cooper order doesn't stop lawmakers from pushing reopening bills. Where's that stand? Will he, will he sign some of those bills or do you think he'll just uh, veto them or just let them go into law? Well, it's interesting to see as we're talking, of course, we're waiting on the school reopening bill, but there are other things that lawmakers are pushing that I suspect that they will pass because, remember, Cooper could always change gears and close things down again. Donna, headline next week quickly. Johnson & Johnson's one-shot vaccine comes to North Carolina. The FDA says it's about 85% effective in preventing serious illness. Headline next week quickly, Joe. Yes, attempts to study the incident on January 6th at the Capitol devolve into partisan name-calling. Headline quickly, Nelson. Trump reemerges on the national stage with a fiery speech at CPAC. Okay, great job, panel. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Letty. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.